Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 22nd, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. All right, Science and the City listeners, saddle up your camels. You heard me, your camels. Today, we're taking a natural history and anthropological journey along the Silk Road, one of the world's oldest and most used trade routes. The American Museum of Natural History's Silk Road exhibit is on until August, and if you listened to our Steve Quinn podcast, you heard how some of the exhibit came together. Today, we've been paired with Mark Norell, the curator for the exhibit. Get ready for an anthropological tour of some pretty crazy history. Should I refer to things in the exhibit? Yes, or? refer okay. to things right, in the great. exhibit. Well, at the beginning of the exhibit, we have sort of a faux camel caravan and then a map. Meet Mark Norell. He's the chairman and curator in charge of the Division of Paleontology at the American Museum of Natural History. Well, ever since I was a kid, I was always really interested in the Silk Road and in Asian archaeology, Asian history. And that sort of transferred one way or another into my current work today, where even though that I, I study dinosaurs and I excavate dinosaurs, I've worked in Asia for the last 25 years, so that uh, I'm a frequent traveler there. I've traveled most of the Silk Road, both on the uh, Eastern Asian side as well as the Western Asian side, so it's just a wonderful place that I've always been fascinated by. So it makes sense that Mark curated the Silk Road exhibit at the museum, which he's giving me a tour of today. And then a map that shows the journey which the exhibit takes people through from Xi'an to Turfan to Samarkand. Well, the Silk Road is a system, a network of trade routes that existed from over 3,000 years ago up until the present. And it's a trade route that spanned all across Asia and into Europe and really connected Asia with with Europe in ancient times, just like it does today. It also shows some of the north-south trade routes and uh, the maritime trade route. and hmm. I think one of the really interesting things about the map is that when it shows some of the major trade routes, it just shows how much that they're restricted by geography. It's like when you go out of Xi'an, you go through the, the, the Yellow River Valley, and then at the southern edge of the Gobi Desert next to the Kunlun Mountains. And you then get the idea. The, uh, Basically, we're talking about over 4,600 miles of traveled trail through some of the world's most challenging terrain. The Silk Road played a crucial role in trade for over 3,000 years, and I asked Mark how he managed to narrow all that time down. Well, you know, choosing how you're going to lay out an exhibit on the Silk Road is really tough because first it spans such a great amount of time as well as a great amount of geography. So the, the time period was the first thing that we settled on, and we decided to go from about 600 A.D. to roughly the 13th century. So that really encompasses the beginnings of Tang Dynasty China uh, into Song Dynasty China, as well as the beginnings of the Islamic caliphates within Central Asia and, you know, ending about the time of the Mongol conquests. So that, you know, we looked at that. Also that then we tried to pick a geographic route to look at some of the very, very different kinds of cultures that existed on the Silk Road, because the story we tell is a lot more than just about luxury goods being transmitted. A lot of it is ideas and language and religion and people. So that we have uh, Xi'an, which is the capital of Tang Dynasty, China. Then we have Turfan, which is a Central Asian oasis town, which is kind of at the nexus of both east-west as well as north-south trade routes. Then Samarkand, which was a, at the beginning of our time period, was a Sogdian city. It was visited by Alexander the Great, and Sogdians were a, a 
kind of mercantile empire of Central Asia at that time period. By the end of our time period, it had been incorporated within to the Islamic part of Western Asia. And finally, Baghdad, which is the seat of the Abbasid Caliphate, one of the you know, earliest and most powerful caliphates in sort of the nascent Islamic empire. So Mark and I start off in Xi'an, the first stop on our journey of the Silk Road. Uh, I mentioned before, Xi'an was the capital of Tang Dynasty, China, and it was, you know, a very, very important city in Chinese history because of that. I mean, it was the place where the, the first Tang emperors sent emissaries to uh, India to study classical Buddhism and then, you know, brought classical Buddhism back to China. And although some Buddhist practices had been present there before, it was really during the Tang dynasty that, you know, classical Buddhism started to replace Confucianism a little bit and stuff and become uh, a major religion within China. And some of the great monuments that uh, uh, existed in uh in Xi'an at the time period, you know, like this picture of the Wild Goose Pagoda and stuff, it's from that time period is where that this traveler, Zhuang Zhang, deposited all the stuff that he brought back from India on a multi-year voyage and stuff wow. to... to uh, Xi'an, to give it some modern-day context, was like a New York of today. A big, pulsing, cosmopolitan city with infrastructure, manufacturing, ideas, and lots of people. In fact, it was the biggest city of its time with over two million people living there. Xi'an made plenty of things which were tradable on the Silk Road, like china and paper, but among the most coveted and beautiful was their handmade silk. Xi'an had a pretty big monopoly on silk, basically because no one else had figured out how to make it. Turns out, they could have fooled me too, because I also had no idea. And these are the little silk... Yeah, these are the cocoons. Are they real, yeah, these, these ones? Are real. These are oh, real. Wow. Actually, over here we have live silk ones. Whoa, no way. Oh my gosh, they're humongous. Well, those are just about ready to turn into, to start spinning cocoons. But, uh, you know, that when they first hatch, that they're out of the eggs, they're really tiny. And, you know, silkworms are pretty, or silk moths and worms are pretty amazing things. I mean, that the adult silk moth is blind, uh, that it's the only insect that we know of which that can't live on its own outside of human captivity. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so, so then how did it ever, I guess we don't really know. We don't really do know we? how they were domesticated originally, but it was uh, you know, several thousands of years ago which the, you know, that they were, they were domesticated. So, and Sheesh, okay, so what's the, how does the life of a silkworm go? They're, they're hatched? Yeah, they're hatched from, from like these eggs, and then they turn into caterpillars. Which in there about like two inches long, maybe, right? Yeah, but when they hatch, say? though, they're really oh. tiny. So, and then that they, uh, over a couple of weeks, few weeks and stuff, is that they they grow the, these mulberry leaves, and then they spin these cocoons, and then the cocoons then are then harvested, and they're dumped into uh, boiling water alive, and then. The, they come apart, and then the silks are then drawn out of the boiling water. So, so when you harvest um, silk cocoons, the caterpillars die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah. don't let them hatch first. No, you don't let them hatch because if they'd hatch, they'd break the threads right. when that they they climb out. But you know, it takes really a lot of silk to uh, of these cocoons to make you know one silk robe. I think it says here that twenty five hundred of these cocoons. Ooh. To, and make, to make one silk robe. So in case you've ever wondered why those silk blouses or silk ties cost so much money, think of the thousands of cocoons that it took to get that thread. To say the Chinese were extremely skilled when it came to weaving patterns in silk thread is an understatement. 
Some of the silk in the exhibit is more intricately patterned than any silk I've ever seen today, which made it a hot commodity on the Silk Road. But speaking of silk, and the Silk Road, a lot more than silk made the journey across the continent, and there wasn't exactly one road that everyone was following. It wasn't one road at all. I mean, that it was, uh, I mean, it's not like the Grand Trunk Road of India or Highway 95 or something like that. I mean, it was really a, a system of both east-west routes as well as north-south routes and even maritime routes. So that it was just a big interconnected network of, of trade routes, which, you know, spanned all across Eurasia. And also, because it wasn't a single route, that people didn't travel the whole thing. I mean, somebody didn't start in Xi'an and then end up in Baghdad eight months later. That, you know, people went from village to village, town to town, and just would offload their stuff and then go back to where they came from. So that it was, you know, just a system of short stops that existed, you know, over 4,000 miles. And these short stops often found themselves with another traveler of the Silk Road, music. So, you know, music is one of the other things that travel on the Silk Road. And... And these are representations of musical instruments that we know instruments like that existed because we find, you know, tomb figures of people playing the same ones. Now, these aren't that old, but they are, you know, 100, 150 years old from the museum's collection. But we can actually, you know, hear them play. So, and so you can hear the pipa, and then you can play it with, with the moon loop and the air hoop together. You know, we moved to Turfan, and Turfan is a really, really interesting place in that it's a, it's a, an oasis town, and it's below sea level in Central Asia, so it gets extraordinarily hot during the summers. Uh, but it is sort of at the nexus of north-south routes as well as east-west roads routes. So it would have been the place, you know, it and Kashgar would have been one of the places where the uh, spices, uh, precious gemstones, that kind of thing, coming from India uh, would have come in and then joined the east-west routes. Hmm. And similarly, like, you know, furs from Siberia, that kind of thing would right. have come in. So, Wow, and so this is quite the, it feels like we actually are in a market. Right. It sounds like we're in a market. The market in Turfan is very much like this today. I mean, you don't see tiger skins and that kind of thing, but nevertheless, there's, there's <laughs> yes. a, there are grape arbors like this that cover, you know, a lot of the city. And, you know, you see, you do see, you know, furs, you see you know, pieces of coral, uh, Turfan's yeah, market is a hub of activity, filled with fur, fruit, animals, silk, spices, nuts, glass, pottery, and just about anything you can think of that would be worth trading. There was so much traffic through this tiny oasis town that they had to figure out a way to irrigate it. That's right, irrigate, and we're talking technology that's thousands of years old. You know, one of the ways in which they irrigated some of these oasis towns right. was through this system called a karez. And a karez is a, uh, an underground tunnel that's dug to the base of the mountains where the water table is higher. So it can go a long distance, like 75, 80 miles under, underground. No way. And there's ones in, you know, Turfan today. There's still several hundred of them in Turfan today. Supply water from the, the mountains, which are, you know, a big distance away and stuff. So, wow. And if you look at them from the air, you just see these holes. <laughs> So people dig these tunnels right. by hand by sort of punching holes down through the earth and then connecting their... Oh, yeah. Talk about a tough job, right? Yeah. And then... Well, some of them were made thousands of years ago, and they're still... That's crazy. They still work that's today. That's crazy. <laughs> Next stop is Samarkand. So in Samarkand, you know, one of the technologies we talk about is papermaking. You know, like I said before, it's a Chinese invention. But uh, and just, you know, we 
kind of look at some of the things that uh, existed, what, what you had to do to write before paper. Bank. <laughs> 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 you know, scratching this stuff out on clay oh tablets, right? Or wood, wax tablets, wood burning or, you know, kind of, you know, wood stuff. But uh, yes. what you had to do to write in those days? Can you imagine? Paper making was actually a pretty advanced technology in those days, and one that didn't come to the Western world for a long time afterwards. It came really late to the Western world. I mean, that uh, in about the, I, I forgot, the 9th to 10th century, but before that, the only things that people could write on were, uh, you know, parchment or papyrus, both of which are really late, or, you know, clay tablets, really labor-intensive. So it kind of stifled the development of literacy. It stifled the development of mercantile trade and that kind of thing. So that uh, when the Islamic armies, you know, were able to capture paper makers uh, at what's called the Battle of Tala, that uh, then that all of a sudden allowed them to be able to spread copies of the Koran, copies of other things, like, you know, to disseminate it really broadly, very, very quickly. Which brings up another thing traded on the Silk Road ideas. Information was some of the most coveted and traded stuff on the journey, from age-old fables to religious ideas to mathematics and scientific techniques and philosophies. One of the impetus for the show was that we wanted to talk about that, you know, with our kind of Eurocentric educations that we have here, that uh, uh, we always learned that this time period was the Dark Ages. So it was after the, the fall of Rome, it was before the, the Age of Enlightenment and the Renaissance and stuff, so that when nothing was happening. You know, but in Asia, it was just the opposite. I mean, it was probably the biggest inflorescence of Asian culture and civilization. I mean, Xi'an at the time period, this time period, in about 800, was the largest city on the planet with two million people, a million inside the walls, a million outside the walls. Uh, it was the time of you know great literature, science, all these things that which we associate with, you know, our own Renaissance and stuff. But actually, it was occurring in Asia during this time period. Finally, we come to Baghdad. <laughs> So then you know, we leave Samarkand and we leave or Central Asia into uh, West Asia, you know, Baghdad. And, you know, Baghdad was even, it was a city obviously even before the, uh, the time of Islam, but it really kind of blossomed as the seat of the Abbasid Caliphate, which was, uh, uh, you know, probably the most early on the most powerful caliphate in the Islamic world. And it was uh, a real, you know, center of a lot of different things. I mean, everything from a... Uh, Technology like glass making to uh, science, literature, things like that. So, in, you know, we talk about the you know, technology we talk about here is really is glass making and that, uh, you know, how glass is made, sort of play it out. But it's kind of interesting. This is a, a piece of glass from Syria and this is over 2,000 years old. Wow. And this is how glass was usually transported along the Silk Road as. As like a raw material, as chunks. Right. It's like it looks like a big chunk of rock. It right. Look you like know, and then that would be sent to China to wherever and stuff, and then it would be reheated and melted, blown into, and you know, made into a variety of different objects. So, oh, how funny! So. I had never thought of glass as ever being a raw material, yeah, like that yeah. it could come in chunks as opposed to. Yeah. Yeah. So he's it. This is like Mark says one of the most surprising things he learned when putting together the exhibit was just how precious glass was. Just how precious glass is in China. I mean, it's just that there's things from the Tang Dynasty tombs which have been excavated or reliquaries which have been found. And they'll, they'll have all these big gemstones, you know, rubies and sapphires from Burma or Sri Lanka and stuff. And then they'll also have little pieces of glass right next to them. It's just, you know, here's this thing that's a throwaway commodity today and stuff. But in Tang Dynasty China, it was considered as valuable as gemstones. And that was because the Chinese, even though they were experts at making silk, could not figure out how to make glass. Go figure. 
So whatever happened to the Silk Road? I mean, one is as an organized trade route, it's largely been supplanted. And even during the time period that we're talking about, we talk about it also by maritime routes because you're able to transfer things along in ships you know, across the Indian Ocean after uh, maritime technology became developed to the degree where you could make long sea voyages and you could actually navigate. And it's much less labor-intensive. You can carry a lot heavier things than you can on camels across the desert. However, a lot of the great Silk Road trails, I mean, along through the Gansu Corridor, for instance, and stuff, are still in use today. I mean, it's just there's highways there now. Mm-hmm. So, And certainly, I mean, through the uh, Karakoram Pass, through the Khyber Pass, are you know, places which that were Silk Road pathways. But today, you know, that there's still, you know, everything from tribal rugs to weapons to heroin to everything gets, you know, transferred across those areas using the ancient trade routes. This was only a sneak peek of the Silk Road exhibit at the AM&H. Want to check it out yourself? Mark says the best day is on Sunday when they have live performances by the Silk Road Ensemble, which is run by Yo-Yo Ma. For more information on the Silk Road exhibit, visit www.amnh.org. Thanks for listening this week. Check out this season's SNC Girls' Night Out series online for tickets to the rest of these awesome events. They all feature compelling and smart women in science. For more information, log on to www.nyas.org slash girlsnightout. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our Girls' Night Out series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.